and welcome to Workforce, where we unravel the behavioural science behind things that happen in the workplace that impact your success and well-being, blending academic evidence with real-life experiences. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Today, I'm talking to you about resilience. What is it? Why do we need it? And how do we build it? When you need to get through those times, you just have to say, I know it hurts, but I'm going to take it. I think for employees, it would be very important to know about the sensitivity of their staff because the sensitivity in many ways is a very valuable place. The greatest moments, without exception, have been born out of what felt like the most difficult times. Before we meet the first of today's guests, though, let's say hello to the awesome Teresa Almeida, a behavioural scientist from the LSE. Hi, Teresa. How do you define resilience? And how can people be more aware of their own resilience reserves? Hi, Grace. Um, So resilience is the ability to adapt and cope or bounce back from adversity. And it allows people to take reactive and proactive actions to deal with these situations. So should people be self-aware regarding their own resilience reserves? I believe that having self-awareness is really important because it it allows you to gauge your ability to take on situations without overextending limits of your own resilience. And resilience is really not a limited resource either. It can be improved and harnessed over time. And it can also be depleted. So knowing what your reserve is, is really important when you take on a situation that might require more or less of your resilience. And how do you think you know whether or not you're feeling resilient on a particular day? So I think you can check in on signs, something like irritability, withdrawal, or lack of attention. And you can also kind of take a moment to recover when you feel like you're, you're getting these signs. So checking in with yourself allows you to kind of see right, do I have resilience for the situation or do I need to take a step back and use some strategies to build up my resilience, for example? And later we'll hear from Professor Michael Pluse, who argues that sensitivity is one of the markers. So high levels of sensitivity is one of the markers that might make people less resilient. Mm. But before we get to that, let's hear what the guests have to say regarding defining resilience. So resilience is bounce back ability. Um, I'll I'll tell you what it isn't before I tell you what it is. It's not um, contrary to what most people will think that, you know, resilient people don't have things happen to them. Actually, resilient people have more things happen to them because resilience is a muscle. It's built over time and you can train yourself to be more resilient. It's essentially having a set of tools for being able to bounce back from the setbacks that will occur in life. There's lots of different definitions. The the most simple that I use is to do better than expected uh, in difficult circumstances. I always take the definition of resilience as being as we see it in the dictionary, which is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. And then it says toughness. I always think it's important to separate the word toughness as being sort of like part of our resilience, but a slightly different part. And the best way that I can describe that is if we think of like a tough material as being something like a hard plastic, the strength in a hard plastic, right, is that it can take a lot of adversity, face a lot of impact, and it stays fixed and strong and exactly as we need it, right? The problem with a tough material is too much impact too much adversity and it'll snap. And when a, when a plastic snaps, we can't use it anymore, right? It's no longer good in its original form. So, so long-term, we want to be more like elastic. And the strength in that is that it can bend and it can distort and it moves out of shape. And the strength lies in the fact that it returns to its original form. And we need both. 
So in the moment, we may need some toughness, but I think having an understanding and an awareness of when we're in either one um, is the most important thing. I think what most people do is just tough it out. And, and, and actually what they're doing is heading towards their breaking point. Now that we have defined resilience and we have heard from Teresa that people should be self-aware regarding their own resilience reserves, I am interested in talking to an expert academic about how we go about actually measuring resilience. For this, I turn to Professor of Development Psychology, Michael Pluse of Queen Mary University of London. Let's hear what Michael has to say. From a traditional understanding of resilience, it would be not developing problems. So often in, in resilience research, the focus was on sort of undesirable outcomes like depression, mental health problems, or behavioral problems. So basically, children or uh, adults that don't show those negative behaviors, that would be evidence of resilience. But the understanding is that that is, by some people, understood as not really displaying resilience sufficiently. They, they think there should be some positive outcomes as well, such as, you know, maybe self-esteem or self-efficacy, so some positive outcomes rather than just the absence of negative ones. So when we think about the absence of negative outcomes, from what I understand from your research, some people are generally more influenced by these negative events that happen in their lives as compared to others. Could you help us understand the distinguishing factors between these two groups of people? Yes, so I mean, we, we do know, we have known for a long time that people differ in how they respond to negative experiences, whether that would be traumatic experiences such as, you know, the exposure to war and refugees, but also loss or um, childhood childhood maltreatment. Now, a different concept that has come up in the last um, probably 20, 15 to 20 years is that maybe it's not that people differ in their vulnerability or only in their vulnerability, but that they differ in their sensitivity or susceptibility. Basically, that some people are generally more impacted by what they experience. So if they experience something negative, that might have a stronger negative impact on them. But at the same time, these people um, are more as well, more impacted by positive experiences. So if they experience something positive, like caring parents, a caring environment or social support or psychological intervention aimed at helping them, they seem to benefit more from those experiences and then do doing better than the less sensitive ones. So that has been quite a game changer in our understanding of individual differences. I'm also happy to say that I devote an entire chapter to resilience in my book, Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. It includes an exercise to measure resilience, which you can also access for free via my website. Please see the show notes for details. So now that we have defined resilience and understand better how to measure it, I wanted to hear more from one of the most resilient women I know. Meet Erica Broadnock, founder of KinHub, well-being at work platform for employees, giving staff the resources to take on life's ups and downs to help them thrive in the workplace. Erica is also a PhD student at the LSE. She's a serial entrepreneur and also a mum of five. Erica has coined the term collecting no's as a strategy to survive as an entrepreneur who is trying to secure funding to scale their awesome business. She is particularly attuned to the harder road to success for women and even more so for black women. Let's hear what Erica has to say about resilience. 
I've started to turn most of the things about me that would be considered to be an adversity into a superpower, Grace. And I've done that because it's one of my ways of being resilient. I'm a black female that grew up in um, southwest London. I'm from Stretton Vale. And there aren't that many opportunities out there that are kind of handed um, on a plate to people from my background. And so... Rather than saying, actually, when people say no to me and when people look at the, um, I, I often say I'm a triple threat in the wrong direction. So being black female working class um, means that <laughs> I am the opposite of what people tend to look for whenever they're looking for someone um, to be productive or articulate or successful. And so rather than buying into that narrative myself and accepting that narrative, narrative I started to say actually what what were the laws of probability in school well the laws of probability said that if you have a dice at some point you have to roll a six and so the more times you roll the dice the more likely you are to get a six and so I will always ask the questions and then I will collect the no's knowing that each no takes me closer to a yes because the laws of probability say that if I have a dice, I must be able to roll a six at some point, meaning that at some point I will have to get to yes. I just need to collect as many no's as I possibly can in order to make that yes more probable. And so that's, for me, the way that I bounce back from a no, because I've turned it into something that I'm now collecting and I make it a little bit of a game so that I can kind of have that resilience to be able to go into the next situation and hear a no again. Because otherwise it can be soul destroying and it can be completely crushing when people are, are saying no to you, not because you're not good enough, but just because of who you are. It is clear that entrepreneurs, regardless, need to be resilient to make to make it. And I think the point that you make, being a black British woman who doesn't come from an elite background, means it's going to be harder for you to make it. And I've heard you speak many times that it is actually harder. Why is it harder, Erica? What underlies the the, the kind of b bigger obstacles that you face? I think that, um, in my opinion. Um, the presumption of deficiency um, that I come up against on a day-to-day -day basis makes it harder for me. So I walk into a room and people are often surprised that I'm articulate or um, they will be shocked that I work in technology or that um, I deal with AI or that I have certain ideas um, because their expectations of what someone that looks and sounds most especially sounds like me is supposed to be capable of um, is far lower than they are actually experiencing with me. And I think that a lot of that comes from um, the, the representations of people like me in media. Um, I was just thinking the other day that I can flick through each of the channels at the moment and not have one single reference of somebody that is black and female or even black and male and good. I watched Luther, um, for example, a few weeks back um, on Netflix and he's supposed to be a police officer, but he's the most corrupt police officer on the planet. Now, don't get me wrong, he's a hero by the end of the movie, but the, the level of corruption and how 
underhandedly he does his work in in the main means that he ends up in prison as the police officer if you see where I'm coming from and then you've got all sorts of other references where we're drug dealers or we're bullies or we're arrogant or we're just all sorts of everything but just very rarely the sharpest person in the room and at the top of our game etc which is why I absolutely adore Shonda Rhimes because she gives us characters like Olivia Pope and Annabelle Keating and and now Queen Charlotte where we're able to kind of say actually these are strong powerful women who are just super intelligent and exceptional in in what they do fabulously flawed as well um as all humans are but just exceptional in terms of what they do um and i think that that's so important and those references occur quite a bit over in the states but in the uk um very rarely and i do think that the media and programming etc needs to kind of really take a long hard look at what we're putting out into the world and why the references that we have for um, black women in particular is so derogatory. So we've heard from Erica about just how important it is to be resilient. It is also evident to me how important resilience will be in the workplace. With the economy being shaped by the fourth industrial revolution, there is much more uncertainty in the job market as compared to the past. Meanwhile, within jobs, the tasks required day to day are changing. There is a greater need for colleagues to be open and adapt to change regarding what is required from them within their roles. Resilience can help here. It stands to reason that firms should want a resilient workforce and perhaps invest in these skills. But should we be cautious of companies wanting to increase resilience of their staff just so they can withstand more stress caused by the firm itself? I chatted to Josh Connolly, a resilience coach and one of the UK's most influential mental health advocates, also a great guy about his work guiding corporate firms in how to nurture self-resilience in their staff. So when you help people become more resilient, are you interested in helping people become more resilient when they've had large negative shocks, like someone has had a divorce, they've had a bereavement, or are you interested in helping people become more resilient to day-to-day stressors, dealing with a rude colleague, dealing with kind of stressful workloads in the workplace, or is it both? Both. Yeah, both. And in fact, actually, when I work in the corporate sector, it's a lot more to do with the latter. So the day to day stuff and how do we make sure that we're aware of what's going on in that sense. And then um, the more personal work that I do is is probably the first one that you mentioned, which is actually processing and dealing some of the things that we've experienced over the course of our lives and the impacts that that has. Yeah. Is it controversial for employers to want to increase the resilience of their employees? Because I guess you could interpret it that they want them to be able to put up with a lot of stress that might be unfair in a way that doesn't break them. I think it can be controversial. I think what happens is is that we polarise conversations, right? And I do think there is something to be said for being wary of not just replacing, you know, man up, by saying be resilient. Right? We know that you can't yeah. say man up because of the gender stereotypes that, that that comes with. But, and I do think this is important, I think I think we need to make sure that people understand that, that a level of toughness is needed, right? I don't believe you can reach success if we define success as moving forward in our careers without a level of toughness. So, so an organization that has a good culture knows that they need to help their... Um, their teams and their employees 
develop a certain level of resilience, right? And I'm also aware that there will be many organizations that have terrible cultures that are working people to the bone and uh, their solution is to just tell them to be more resilient. Speaking to Josh and Erica has convinced me that resilience is worth teaching. In fact, I view resilience as a key skill that should be taught at schools. I wanted to know if Josh and Erica would agree. I think that this should definitely be being taught in schools or at least pre-7. I think neurological pruning um, happens at 7, again at 15 and at various other points in, in childhood. And um, what you have built in terms of internally, in terms of resilience by those points will stick with you through the rest of your life. The earlier that you can learn how to identify and manage emotions and to build tools such as grit and resilience, the better, because they are going to be the tools that will serve you through whatever it is that you'll you'll come up against in life. Um, So I think that the earlier children learn these tools, the better. One of the things that I did previous to um, creating KinHub was build Charisma Kids. Charisma Kids lived in a, a place called Moodville. In Moodville, you had places like Fear Farm, Angry Alley, um, Guilt Ghetto, um, Shame City on the outskirts of town. And then you had Joyful Junction and Love Lane and Gratitude Gardens um, and the Happy Hut in the centre of town. And what we wanted to teach children is that you are able to feel all of the variety of emotions and you can go out to the outskirts of town, feel that emotion. As long as you don't live there, you live in your centre. You live in joy, you live in gratitude, you live in in happiness, um, but you experience an emotion and then you let it pass and then you you find your way back to the centre. And I think that if we taught more children um, that at the very earliest opportunity, we would have many, many more adults that are able to understand how to move through emotions and how to kind of be more resilient. Um, I think that one of the key lessons I've learned in life is that emotions aren't supposed to end up stuck in your body. They are supposed to um, to kind of be transient, as I say, and flow. I think that when when children reach particularly teen levels, I think it's normalised for young boys to be angry, whereas it's not, you know, girls are not allowed to be angry or are certainly labelled much quicker if they do. When it comes to like young children, I think we often hear people say things like children are naturally resilient. I don't think they are. I think they're natural born survivors with huge capacity to be resilient. Um, And so rather than perhaps resilience training within schools, I think we need to invest in in children and young people way, 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 way more than we do in in Western culture, at least. um, and I think we need much more emotionally available adults around children. And then I do think that they'll develop resilience, right? Um, if they're given the space and the adequate support that they need to do that. That's what I think we lack in schools, by the way. I think we, uh, in, in recent times, if you look over the last decade, we've removed funding for all of support for, for young families, schools, and everything that supports young children, you know? So I think that's a huge problem. Yeah, I think that's a huge, you know, if, if we tackled that issue... Then, then I don't think we would need as much resilience work in, in adults at all, yeah. Clearly, Josh and Erica are two highly resilient people who have experienced things that challenge their resilience at many points in their lives. 
This got me thinking about why some people survive and even thrive major negative events in their lives, while others struggle greatly and never recover. Professor Michael Pluse, who we met earlier, does research into this puzzle. So we basically looked at the heritability of sensitivity measured with a highly sensitive child scale. This is a, a self-report measure, a questionnaire with 12 questions that has been designed to measure sensitivity in children and adolescents between the ages of 8 to 18 years. And that captures different aspects of how people, how perceptive they are, sort of like capturing sensory sensitivity, um, how difficult they find loud noises or having a lot going on, but also how much they enjoy art or, you know, good taste and things like that. And uh, we wanted to then find out how much of those differences between people are due to genetic factors or environmental factors. And the way we did that is by including the measure in an ongoing twin study, a very large twin study in the UK, the TED study. We just compared identical twins with fraternal twins uh, to estimate the influence of genetic factors versus environmental factors and did find that similar to many other personality and temperament traits, close to 50% of the differences between people could be explained by genetic factors and the remaining 50% would be explained by environmental factors. There seems to be some evidence to suggest that uh, more traumatic experiences or more negative experiences upregulate sensitivity. That would make sense from an evolutionary perspective because if you're growing up in a more challenging environment, then being more sensitive might help you to be more vigilant um, and to be more aware of dangers and threats. So there is some suggestion that early trauma or early negative experiences could increase sensitivity. Um, but I also make the case in, in one of my papers that it might be the combination um, of the genetic factors and the environment and then shapes different sensitivity types. The genetic sensitivity might be more neutral sensitivity, but if someone experiences a more challenging environment, especially during their childhood, they may develop a sensitivity type that is more focused on threat, on the detection of threat. And maybe someone that grows up with a similar genetic predisposition for sensitivity, but grows up in a very supportive and caring environment, they may develop a sensitivity more geared towards those sort of positive and supportive aspects. And we did do a study like that uh, using data from the National Childhood um, National Child Development Study, um, a large cohort study in the UK, where we uh, created a, a polygenic score for sensitivity based on, on a number of genetic factors. And we're looking at how that is interacting with environmental factors in childhood and then adulthood. And we did find that the more genetically sensitive ones that grew up in more difficult environments, they developed a slightly higher stress reactivity in adulthood. They were more negatively impacted by more challenging environments in adulthood. But the genetically sensitive individuals that grew up in a more positive environment, they were less reactive out to that. So that they seem to be more resilient. So this suggests when we talk about sensitivity and resilience, we really have to consider 
the development of individuals. And we know based on research with psychological programs that the more sensitive individuals, the more sensitive people, they seem to benefit more from um, psychological interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reason I think they do that is because they might process that information more deeply and then are more likely to apply it in their own life. So what does Michael say about how we can boost our resilience levels? Erica Brodnock talked earlier about collecting no's. Michael has a great analogy for this. There's also a very interesting concept, which has been proposed by a very renowned child psychiatrist, Mike Rosser, who was one of the, the key resilience researchers, uh, uh, passed away a few years ago. So he was talking about stealing effects. Basically, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And stealing effects refers to the development of resilience in that he found in his research that children that experienced small-scale challenges in childhood over time sort of developed resilience or self-efficacy. And the idea of that is basically the, the smaller trauma or smaller adversity, overcoming that strengthens your resilience and helps you develop the coping strategies and then makes people stronger over time. It's also called, referred to as the psychological immune system, that we need the exposure to certain threats and challenges in order to strengthen our immune system, um, our psychological immune system. So therefore, it's, it's important for the development of resilience to be exposed to certain challenges, especially if those challenges help us develop the coping strategies, the coping behaviors that will help us in the future. So basically guarding ourselves from any challenges makes us more vulnerable than helping us. Okay, we know resilience is important. We know how to measure it. We have also heard some of the most recent academic insights from Michael Pluse. Let's go back now to Josh and Erica for some practical tips on how all of us can increase our resilience levels and also preserve the reserves we have. There's lots of different exercises, right, that we can do to be able to breathe in, breathe in and come into our body, right? The most simple one is to breathe in through the nose and elongate the exhale. Now, every, I don't think it's a maths lesson. People will say in for four and out for seven, in for five, out for eight. I think if you elongate the exhale, yeah, you'll you'll find yourself come straight back into your body pretty quickly, actually. And the, the, the thing that I often encourage people to do is spend a bit of time noticing what that feels like. Yeah, noticing that actually when we come into our bodies, we might start to feel some of this tension release from our upper body, maybe from our abdomen, and also be aware, which is true for a lot of people, that that can actually in itself bring on a feeling of overwhelm. Yeah. So, so then I, you know, that's when I say to people, then we really need to do some more exploring. And ultimately, at the core of what we're talking about with resilience is self awareness. If resilience is about resources, if resilience is about building in the resources that I need to be able to support myself through the journey of life, yeah, then I need to understand who I am and the struggles that I go through. I think a lot of people have the belief that if I reach out for help, right, if I go and get help and support from somebody, then that is a failing of my resilience, that people tend to think that means that I'm struggling with my resilience because I'm having to go and get help and support. 
I think the greatest resource that we have to us as human beings is other human beings. Um, mm. and, and so making sure that I'm building some kind of community and by community, I mean, actively, um, nurturing relationships with at least a handful or two of people in my life that I know will support me and that I can feel like I am supporting, I think is of huge importance. I think the one-to-one, the idea of one-to-one relationship healing, as great as it is and as needed and as, as part of our journey as it should be, I think it's quite a new concept. Into mm-hmm. If we look over the history of time, I think we've always collectively healed together. And let me say this as well very quickly. I think if you get deep into the work of understanding who you are and why you show up to the world in the way that you do, what you'll start to realize is that it ain't all an individualistic thing. This is much more to do with the systems and structures and communities that you grew up in. And so if, if the struggle and the trauma began in community and in relationships, then the real healing work happens in community and relationships. When I was younger, I had um, my first toothache. I think I might have been about 14 and I had um, an abscess on my tooth. Um, and that was probably one of the worst pains that I've ever been through. And and my dad said that, you know, this was probably, um, he, he acknowledged that toothache was the worst pain and, and what have you. But he said there are going to be points in your life where you will go through much more than this and it will feel like it's never going to end but this too shall pass was um what he said and then he also said when you need to get through those times you just have to say I know it hurts but I'm going to take it and I say that so much I recently had some incredible news um, and I went to my dad um, and I said to him, the only reason I'm here after five children and all the ups and downs and everything else that I've been through is because of the fact that I say, I know it hurts, but I'm going to take it. And I will just power on through whatever it is that I need to get through in order to get to the end result. I also do things like set myself little rewards. So, for example, um, I'm fundraising at the moment. I'm collecting no's, as I do, because that's the world that I live in. And so reframing and collecting no's rather than being destroyed every time someone gives me one is an essential part of building or keeping the resilience that, that I have. Teresa, what are your top tips for honing resilience and preserving the resilience reserves that you already have? So I think probably three areas of tips that could be interesting. The first one, I was reading Brene Brown's book on vulnerability, and she talks a lot about the fact that managers who are most resilient are able to, one, socialize with others. And I think we've heard that from the guests already, but also staying curious about your emotions and behaviors. And that to me seems like something that can help you create and preserve your resilience reserves. And then finally, the willingness to lean into discomfort and vulnerability And I think that's really interesting because it comes to the point of uncertainty. Situations that are uncertain, you probably need more resilience in them. So for me, one of the things that I like to pay attention to is loss aversion. So human beings do a pretty good job in paying attention to negative events in their lives and a pretty bad job of paying attention to positive events in their lives. So if you can imagine yourself going to work and a car is coming along and they speed through a puddle on a rainy day and they splash you from top to toe, Teresa, I'll ask you, 
would you be frustrated in a way that it would last towards the day that you would go into work, maybe talk to our colleagues, Nikita, who I know you share an office with, <laughs> about getting splashed and maybe curse a little bit at the driver? Yeah, I think I would. Um, I think I probably would not remember that that's why I was feeling bad that day. So I think some good ideas for that is also, I read this thing about labeling your emotions. You know, we tell kids, speak what you're thinking. Yep. Um, but actually being able to take a step back and being, you know, I'm upset because this happened in the morning and it has nothing to do with going into a meeting with you for 30 minutes. So I should build my resilience back and I, take a step. I feel somewhere in there that you're crediting your lousy mood with the meeting with me for 30 <laughs> minutes, but stay with me. Imagine now instead that you're going to work on a rainy day and a driver slows down so that they do not splash you with the puddle and you notice it. Do you think that that's something that would actually weigh on your emotions or would you just brush it off as something that happened? I probably forgot about it in about two minutes. Yeah. And that's most human beings. We tend to pay attention to the negative and not the positive. I think the weird thing about the puddle example is obviously you're getting soaked in the first and not in the second. But you could even think about it if a colleague is rude to you versus giving you a major compliment. The, the rudeness tends to weigh on people mm. much more than the compliments. If we're in a meeting and we're interrupted, we tend to weigh much more on that than if we're in a meeting and somebody helps our voice get heard in the meeting. So one thing that I do is to pay attention to the positive things that actually happen in a day. Mm. And I do this routinely at 6 p.m. You will know I don't journal, so I'm not the best with notes. So I just do it mentally in my mind. Um, if I can't do it at 6 p.m., I do it as, as close as I can and just recall as many positive things that are going on. And the weird thing um, about this is that when you start doing it, you'll start still thinking about negative events that happened in the day. So you have to say to your brain, no, it's time, it's time to give me the positive. But that really aligns with gratitude. And there's a huge literature on gratitude that's linked to resilience. So people who take it um, a, a step further and who journal will have more benefits than I will, for example. But ultimately taking time out, ideally daily, but if not daily, weekly to practice gratitude is a good way to see off loss aversion, realizing that good things are happening along with the bad. And do you feel the impact on your own life? I do. I do. I think also, you know, if, you, if you've had a lousy day, there's always something good has happened. So counting those good things that have actually happened along the way really, hmm. re re really helps me. So, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's cheap, it's free. Um, so I, I, that's, that's what I'm going to recommend to our listeners. Very, very, very simple. That's really nice. I had a whole other idea of which I thought was cool was the idea of improvisation. You know, I really like fun and humor. Yes. And I think improvisation is something that can also help you build resilience because you're working through these made up scenarios where there is an impact, but the impact is not on your life. Yep. And you can kind of role play dealing with uncomfortable situations, dealing with other things. So I think everyone should be a bit more playful, but actually playing around with probably situations that require you to improvise or make decisions in a moment could also be kind of a good way of building resilience. I feel in 10 years time, people will be saying in the same way that they um, schedule their exercise, they will schedule their fun. I know some people do it already, but they will let time in the week for fun. So things that they know that they'll enjoy doing and they just enjoy doing them for the reasons that you just described. Hmm. I, I just hope that everyone has fun all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we can go to the outro. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Workforce. We can only squeeze so much from our guests into the final edit of each episode. So there is bonus content with all of today's guests available to watch on my YouTube channel. Please head to the show notes for where to find those or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram where I will be posting the content. Huge thanks to Josh Connolly, Erica Brodnock and Michael Pluse for sharing their time and thoughts with us and to Teresa Almeida for simply being fabulous and also very humorous. This is the bit where I plead for your support. Please give me a helping hand in getting Workforce in front of more listeners by subscribing, rating and reviewing wherever you are listening to this. We'd also love to hear your questions and ideas for future episode topics. You can contact me anytime through my website on 
www.gracelorden.com. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, and I hope I earned the privilege of your time. Bye for now. <laughs>